You're listening to episode 18 of the GDPR Guy. Chat with Kabir Bade, CEO of OneTrust. Welcome to the GDPR Guy, the podcast dedicated to all things privacy. I'm your host, Carl Gottlieb, trusted privacy advisor to leading technology companies. In this episode, I'm chatting live with Kabir Bade, CEO of OneTrust. We're discussing hypergrowth, listening to customers, maintaining best of breed, and what's next for OneTrust. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, the GDPR Guy. Uh, today, I'm excited to be joined by Kabir Bade, the founder and CEO of OneTrust. Uh, Kabir, welcome to the show. Thanks, Carl. Uh, so before we start, I should probably just set the scene about who OneTrust is. Uh, basically, if you work in privacy, you've probably used OneTrust probably on a daily basis. Uh, and for everyone else, uh, you've definitely clicked on your fair share of OneTrust provided cookie banners. Uh, I read, I think there's about 350,000 of them out there. So uh, Kabir has a lot to answer for. <laughs> yep. So uh, I'm going to put Kabir right in the spotlight very early on and just say, so first question, um, can you just give us an elevator pitch for OneTrust? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people in the industry know us from privacy. We we really were one of the early players in privacy management and building tools to comply with all these privacy regulations. But we've expanded really uh, quickly from there. And when we talk to our customers who use us for privacy, they would tell us that their real goal is to be trusted. They want to be a trusted organization and a trusted company. And so when we really looked into what all goes into being a trusted company, we found that there's an entirely new category of software that needed to be developed uh, for an organization. And we call that the trust fabric of an organization. And how do we bring together privacy, security, GRC, ethics and compliance, ESG, into these single operational workflows for an organization. So when they need to do an evaluation on new projects, new apps, new marketing campaigns, they're not having this death by a thousand cuts problem of having to do ethics by design, security by design, privacy by design, four questionnaires here, third party evaluation there. But we can bring that together into these single workflows and really drive these outcomes for trust. So that's really what we're all about today. Fantastic. Uh, great pitch. Thank you. I'll, I'll buy it. Um, so. Let's let's think about December. So December, um, you had quite a great Christmas, really, last year because uh, it was the twenty first December. You announced uh, your latest funding round uh, of the small sum of three hundred million dollars, uh, creating a valuation of five point one billion uh, for One Trust. And am I right that One Trust isn't really even five years old? Um, so yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's kind of. Incredible growth, really, for any kind of company out there, especially in B2B world, especially in a pandemic. So just give us a bit, bit of a backstory about how you've actually achieved that. Yeah. And just for some commentary on it, what was really exciting about that funding round, um, well, we had you know money from our Series A, all of our Series B, uh, all available. So we've been very frugal, actually. And now we have you know over a decade of, of, of runway that uh, we're very secure in. Uh, but what's really interesting is that our new investor, TCV, um, usually makes, they don't have hundreds and hundreds of investments. They make a very small number of investments, um, highly concentrated in kind of these market-defining, category-defining companies like Airbnb, like Netflix. Um, and they had done research on all enterprise software companies that they had 
any sort of data point on. And they looked at what was the path that that company went from zero to 100 or zero to 150 million in revenue. Um, and there's some fast growing companies, uh, you know, ServiceNow, CrowdStrike, Snowflake. Snowflake did it in six years. And they found that we did it in four years, which makes us the fastest growing enterprise software company ever in history that they could find data on. And I bring it up to just talk about the criticality of a platform like this in an IT stack. I mean, you know, you have Salesforce as a, as a you know, a ubiquitous platform for customers, ServiceNow for IT, Atlassian for R&D. And this entire new category has become so important. So a big part of it, Carl, has really been the market supports it. And these trends have become so important, starting with privacy. I mean, privacy and GDPR and, and CCPA turned a legal policy issue, even though there should have been more done other than just a privacy policy, even on the Data Protection Act and the, the, the previous directive. But the reality was people were just creating policies and it turned it into an operational infrastructure issue overnight. Deleting data out of a database is a hard thing to do. Uh, in an SAP database, you would corrupt the entire database if you did that. And so it created this technology problem that drove an entirely new market. And that's really what, what was so exciting. And from a OneTrust perspective, you know, we had the advantage of really being able to bring together a, a really deep technology expertise where I was able to recruit a team that just knows how to build SaaS technology at scale uh, in, in flagship technology companies, but also the regulatory context on how do you do it in a way that actually meets the customer's requirements. And just as an example, I remember talking to another company in the privacy space before I started and I asked their CEO, are you building PIA technology? And they said, well, you can't build PIA technology because everyone wants to do PIAs differently. And, and that was the difference in the market. You had a market with so much legal and academic knowledge, but without the knowledge of how to build configurable software that scales. Or you had a lot of software people that just didn't get the nuance of the regulation. And you know, I went to IAPP camp, got every single one of their certifications, got my fellow of information privacy, uh, I always tell Trevor, he needs to give me uh, that Trevor uh, IAPP CEO, he needs to give me the Grand Slam trophy for attending every single IAPP conference globally in a year. Um, so we really immersed ourselves to become experts in this space. And I, Carl, I don't know if you know this or not, in the employment contract of every single employee in one trust that's customer facing, mandatory to get two IAPP certificates during their certain time period, or they lose their jobs flat out because we really believe you can't solve or be a partner to a customer. You can be a salesperson, but you can't be a partner to a customer unless you can have that common language and playing field. And look, we're not experts by no means. I don't know that anyone, you're definitely an expert, but we're, you know, we just wanna have a common playing field, uh, a common language we can partner with customers on. So those were some of the, the you know, special ingredients we had in the early days that let us really take off on a trajectory uh, when there are a lot of people trying to solve this problem. I mean, your, your kind of partnership and relationship with the IAPP uh, and even acquisition of their training uh, platform uh, recently is, um, I think it just it creates a lot of credibility um, for anyone because it almost, it, as a kind of an outsider, like someone that consumes uh, OneTrust products and other products on a daily basis, it almost feels like you're on par with the IAPP or even competing in some sense because of the amount of product 
and uh, thought material and collateral that you're putting out there and training you're putting out there on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, we have we do have a great relationship with the IAPP, but what I would say is it's no different than we only do things that are available to everyone. And so anyone in the market can sign up and take IAPP exams. Why, why don't they? Uh, and so we do, and, and we, we, we pay the, you know, it's expensive, and, but we know that's an investment that we need to make. Anyone can go sign up for an IAPP trade show. We just know that it's important to have a bigger booth. <laughs> uh, anyone can, you know, go to IAPP and say, hey, let's, you know, do this webinar together. And so, uh, you know, we, we haven't necessarily done anything um, that's outside of the menu. We just take full advantage of it. And we try to be creative in proposing new ideas and, and it's available to everyone. And so, you know, a big part for us was really establishing the partnership where we can go to them with ideas and see if we can make it happen. Anybody can go to them with new ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been a great relationship. But, um, you know, they, they partner with hundreds of technology companies and, and certainly um, are very independent there. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the, I mean, my impression just talking to you now, the audience will probably get as well, but also from my experience is that you kind of come over as extremely business minded, uh, very strategic. Um, you're not the kind of typical tech CEO that really is just a hacker that is great at building code, but has got no idea how to create a revenue uh, stream. Um, my understanding is that you actually did it the way around. Like at the very start, you had your whiteboard in your bedroom. You uh, looked at what the big trends in tech and then doubled down on your, on your selection. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you have to be passionate and excited about what you do. But, you know, when you're not in the privacy industry and somebody tells you about privacy, it doesn't sound very exciting on the surface until you get into the industry. And it is so fascinating. I mean, the historical context being different in Europe and fundamental rights and even going back to Nazi Germany and some of the data collection and, and things that happened there. And in, in Asia, it's about uh, uh, saving face and respect. And in, in uh, Latin America, it's about ownership. In America, it's about money and commercial. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, the historical context, the competition issues, the technology implications. So I, I really learned to love it. But, but to your point on uh, being more business oriented, uh, you know, I'm a developer and computer science person by trade. So uh, I coded for my first job, but, you know, I, I, I wasn't really fulfilled with um, having someone else kind of look at the strategy and market and kind of tell me what to do. I always had ideas on my own, but I could never do them as a developer. So I very quickly shifted out of that role, but the technology background um, and now kind of the privacy background in my studying in that environment um, I think has established a, a basis for that. But look, I, you know, I just I like being in front of the customer and learning and I'm curious, but uh, I'm a huge nerd. Don't get me wrong. And uh, I try to hide it by not wearing my glasses in these interviews. And uh, uh, and um, but uh, but yeah, appreciate that. So am I right in thinking that at first you picked the wrong idea, that at first you were going to go with an employee data breach product? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you, you talked about the whiteboard I had in my room. And, and when I was starting a company, I knew, you know, I, I, I wanted to start with the end in mind. How I wanted to be able to do something big. And in order to do something big, I knew I, I didn't want to go into an existing market where I just had to go take customers from, from competitors all day. I knew I wanted a big greenfield market 
And in order to do that, I started to think about what are the big trends that are happening in the world that are creating new markets. And so, you know, I, I, I thought about what, what I call the aging Twitter generation or the aging millennial generation. You know, when, when, you know, my whole generation can only talk in 64 characters, what are new services they're going to want when they're old? And so does that develop a new market? There's a whole market around freemium. People don't want to pay for things anymore. What, what does that look like? And then I knew data collection and data issues were a major, major trend. And one of the ideas was, um, what are the risks of employees kind of taking data from the company and leaking them or doing something malicious, which ends up not being as big of a problem in, in reality. Um, and it was, it was completely the wrong idea. But you learn that very quickly. And even when I, I pivoted to privacy as the idea and privacy management, the first version of the platform I designed you know, was like a TurboTax product that helped a company figure out what laws applied to them. And so I thought the problem was, I talked to privacy people, they're like, it's so complex, I don't even know what the laws are. But that ended up also not being as big of a problem because you go to your lawyer and a 20 minute call, they'll tell you the laws and there's no real need for technology. And what I learned through that process, you know, there's a, a, a new way of doing startups, it's called startup engineering or the lean startup. So I read a book by Eric Reese called The Lean Startup and it talks about iterating, talking to customers and getting feedback. But the hard part is privacy people are so nice, they're so friendly that no matter what you put in front of them, they're gonna encourage you and tell you you're doing a great job. So you had to learn to look for the keywords. It's not encouragement, but it's, they'll take out their wallet and buy it right then and there. And until you can do that, you wanna keep iterating and have no pride of ownership, throw out an idea, start over. And that was a big part of my journey. I think I, I read that a quote you've said in the past was, until you get a check, it's a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. I don't remember specifically that, but I'm sure that came up in a webinar somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I guess you, you do truly embrace the whole MVP uh, idea of just getting out there and, and just talking to customers from day one, just saying, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? I'm going to build this company. What would you pay for? And if you will, yeah. okay, I'm going to build it, pay me. Yeah, and the, the, there's a, a critical way of doing it in a very transparent way. You know, you hear about all these software companies with vaporware selling things that don't exist yet. Th that is completely the wrong way of interpreting uh, how to do an MVP. You want to be very transparent and say, look, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, building some sort of product, would love your feedback to see if this is interesting for you. This isn't a sales pitch but I hope it will become a sales pitch in a year if this works. And you kind of, you know, uh, uh, disarm somebody by just being honest about that and seeing if they have a great idea and they want, you know, they want to be an advisor. And, you know, what I really learned is I came from a security industry before OneTrust, which is privacy. And man, was privacy such a welcoming environment. And the, what I chalk it up to is in security, you go to somebody and say, hey, I want to run an idea by you or can I interview you? You know, they, you know, security people think about everything as a social engineering attack. They think you're trying to just social engineer them, hack into their systems. Uh, and it's a very rigid environment with vendor fatigue. Like they just get so many vendors thrown at them. Uh, and, and conceptually, they kind of have to be skeptical as people to kind of identify these phishing attacks. Privacy is about respect respecting people, respecting their intentions and what they want to have. And privacy people embody that kindness, that welcoming, that respect. And so it was such a welcoming environment and so many people willing to talk and trade ideas. It was really fun. 
And you were at Airwatch, I believe, because I, I used to actually work for a security reseller and sell Airwatch. I think at the kind of time you were there when the whole BYOD bubble was really yeah. like, it was just massive. Uh, there was You guys were probably fighting against Mobile Iron on a daily basis. There was exactly. uh, every vendor from Checkpoint to everyone else was trying to do it. Uh, Airwatch eventually got, was it sold to, was it VMware? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, but it's it's a tough, really, really tough market, and people are throwing objections at you every 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 kind of aspect to it, and it's it's really, really kind of it's a difficult market, especially the kind of reseller, the channel side of sales. So um, yeah, I think you've picked an easier place to be in privacy and then in trust <laughs> for, for absolutely for sure. Yeah, but but that BYOD environment, while you bring it up, that's how the idea of One Trust was born because we had. Um, a real business problem because of privacy. What bring your own device software could do is look at what applications an employee has installed on their device, display it to the IT help desk, send it to a third party to analyze the list of applications to see if it's anything malicious, send it back. The IT desk now knows uh, what religious app you have, what healthcare app you have, what uh, dating app you have. And, and it's uh, was a real issue for us in, in Europe. And I didn't understand why, uh, and, and now you do. It's pretty much every special category of data. And I, you know, in the early days of that, that was like 2013, 2014, I said, I bet we can create a set of privacy by design capabilities that could differentiate us in the market. And we called it privacy first. And it was, it might be one of the first, you know, handful of examples in the market of privacy being used as a competitive differentiator. And, and now that's kind of what people are trying to accomplish. So uh, yeah, it was a big part of my story and transition into OneTrust. So clearly OneTrust is kind of winning really in the market right now. You know, that's clear for everyone to see. And you've kind of got, got evidence in terms of the valuation of the company and how investors are kind of seeing that. But so there might be a kind of an impression that, that people would think that you're all about winning. But one of the things I've heard you say in the past is that you actually hate to lose more than you like to win. Is that true that yeah. like, hating to lose is really, really that important? Well, so hating that we talk about hate to lose versus like to win in terms of um, kind of a mindset and how you approach a product problem. Um, the challenge, with, you know, we, with liking to win is you uh, ultimately winning means we've developed a product that solves a really important product and we've done it the right way. And there's a lot that goes into that. But liking to win means that you can win one in 20, one in 50 and feel so good about it. And then the 49 customers that said your product is, is no good, uh, the pricing is bad, it's too expensive for us, you kind of ignore and you, 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 know, you kind of celebrate that one. For us, we know that we can have a bigger impact on being able to help organizations respect privacy, be ethical, be trusted. And we're very much a mission-driven organization. I mean, these things are important to, to us as, as people. And I always, I always tell people, you know, I want, you know, it's, it's scary for me to, I'm having my first child in July and having them grow up in a world where just how they interact with people is going to be different because of how much everyone knows about them. If Google has a breach and all your search history is exposed or you're, it's a scary thought. And so, you know, hating to lose is about analyzing every time that you did not do a good job for a customer and focusing on that and solving it and not brushing those under the rug. And, and that's the context of, of how we think about that. 
do you find that hate that that kind of attitude makes you risk averse or are you more the kind of slightly kamikaze approach of we're going to lean into it we're going to lean into that 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 uh, that that challenge, that that rejection, so that we can work out why we're being rejected, and then build a product, build a, build a better sales process, so that we can give the customer what they actually do want. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 less about being risk averse or or risk prone, and and more about uh, iterating and improving. And so uh, there's a, a a quote I always liked from I think it was. Um, uh, good to great, or one of those, you know, J- J- uh, Jim uh, Kobe type books, where he says, "Fire bullets and then cannonballs." And so, what do you, what we always talk about is um, experiment, experiment a lot, but don't waste all your ammunition, all your funding, all your time, all your resources until you've calibrated on what the right concept is. And so, uh, you know, a great example for us is we've worked hard to pioneer a new way of doing third-party risk management called our Vendorpedia Exchange. And so what we saw in the market was that all our customers were sending some sort of customized, slightly different security privacy questionnaire to the same vendor. Both sides hated it. The vendor hated it because they got to fill out all these manual questionnaires. And the customer hated it because it's like it's not a fulfilling job, sending questionnaires all day, telling the vendor what they did wrong. And so we said, hey, there's got to be an exchange in the middle that standardizes this and, you know, it sounds easy and obvious, but the business model around it is actually very complex and the legal issues around it are very complex. And so uh, it took us two years really to iterate, iterate, start small, experiment, experiment, experiment until we really got it right. And then we went big. So for us, it's not fear of uh, uh, taking risks. It's just doing them in calculated sizes and in, in a smart way and then taking bigger and bigger risks as you calibrate. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's clearly working as an as an approach. I know in the early days you were you relied on customers, like literally going in front of customers, having workshops with them to help them develop the product with you, like tell you what they would buy, um, you know, what they would and what they wouldn't pay for. Uh, how much do customers drive your product development right now versus you looking ahead to see what you think the market would be and helping shape that market for future demand? Yeah, you know, this is a, uh, a challenge that any leader in a tech company will tell you um, is a delicate balance. And so when you, when you have a lot of customers, number one, you have to deliver for them before you can do anything else. But delivering for them also makes, it requires you to uh, be a long-term provider, which requires you to innovate. Uh, and so you have this kind of, most customers at scale will have a lot of really granular requirements like add this filter, move this button, and those are critical, absolutely critical. Um, but if you only listen to what customers tell you to do, you'll kind of miss an entire wave, an entire market, right? Customers didn't tell us to build redaction into our platform. They told us to just, how do we make DSARs more efficient, more automated? And, and we had to study the problem to understand redaction was a problem. And so you have to balance looking ahead and understanding the problems that customers aren't telling you they have, but you're observing that they're having, or you know they're going to have because you're looking forward at how it's going to scale with getting really granular input to make the day-to-day easier. And so both of those are important. And we have customer advisory boards. We have upvoting and downvoting. We meet with industry analysts. We do customer roundtables. We 
you know, kind of start fresh and look at just white space diagrams in terms of, you know, what, what are real problems that are emerging in the industry. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, a, a real complex kind of prioritization challenge. But, you know, number one out of everything is how do we deliver for our customers every single day? Yep. Completely makes sense. And we've got a question here from uh, James Gannon that says, uh, building on that, how do you strategize on product management, given how broad the potential ideas are? And how do you narrow down and focus on product areas? Yeah, so, you know, I'll answer in kind of two big chunks. So for me, I talked about kind of the lean startup and kind of a more scientific way of uh, building a company nowadays. And, and Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, was was a fantastic resource for me. There's another book called The Business Model Canvas that was really interesting. And essentially, you can look at kind of different ideas and just incrementally experiment with them and, and throw them out as, as soon as your hypothesis is, is proved um, that it's, it's not true. So for example, with me, you know, I knew when I talked to two companies um, that, you know, building a tool to build to tell you what laws you're subject to wasn't that interesting and you can just kind of throw it away and just do process by elimination but then when you kind of are, are focused a little bit on a certain area and you know you want to build a product for me the problem was i figured out that the 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 market needed a privacy platform and that privacy platform needed pias data mapping training incident third party and you're like where do i start i don't know where to start uh, and again that's where it comes down to uh, figuring out uh, who, who's going to write the check for what and what are they going to do first. And for me, I was sitting in an IAPP event and I sat in an IAPP event and uh, Scott Taylor, uh, who was at HP at the time, now at Merck, um, and um, uh, the Marriott CPO at the time, Kathy Memzo, who's, who's now I think at, at Hilton, they had done a session on how they built a PIA tool. And the audience afterwards raised their hand and said, how do I buy it? And they said, you got to build it yourself. So it just proved the case right there. This was kind of the only session on tooling. This is what they were building. People wanted it. There was at least that kind of market. But then the next problem is what features do you build first? Because there's like, there's so many features you could build and how do you start? And you alluded to Carl, what I did, and I had gotten a certification in product management and agile development. And I flew on site to a potential customer that had expressed interest. And on I took out note cards and on every note card, I wrote a feature. And I put a dollar amount that that feature would cost. The trick is you don't put the dollar amount based on how hard it is to build the feature. You put the dollar amount based on what you perceive the value of that feature is. So even if it's really easy to build, it might be the most expensive feature because I'm testing my hypothesis that it's so valuable, they're going to want to pay for it. And then I got monopoly dollars and gave the customer like $100 and they had to prioritize which features they would build. And it blew me away that they picked a completely different set of features than I thought was valuable. And that's how I prioritized it. So, you know, I know I went to, into a little bit of detail on this, but I always like to kind of demystify the process of building a product and company for people because it seems so hard on the outside, but there's a very scientific incremental process you can follow to do these things. And one of the things you mentioned earlier on, uh, slightly in contrast to what you just said, was about freemium. And freemium is something that you've one just has never been really afraid of. Like you're constantly releasing tools that others will always charge for. Um, you know, whether it be tools, whether it be training, whether it be certifications. And I mean, the training side of it is really interesting because the amount of collateral you you guys are putting out, 
you don't see from any other vendor apart from the tech giants. You just don't see it. You don't see that level of investment. And the tools are production-ready, kind of enterprise-ready tools that some of them are just free. Um, has that strategy been key to the growth of OneTrust? Yeah, it has been. You know, and this was a really tough decision for me early on because when you do something for free, there's a perception that it's not valuable. Uh, and then when you charge for it, it's a barrier to getting adoption. Uh, and so also when you do it for free, it's hard to incentivize your sales team to actually go introduce it to a customer. So it's always a, a challenge. And so what I started to realize in the decision point for me was that the privacy market is a bit strange in that um, budgets and maturity of these companies um, do not follow any sort of pattern that I could that at least I could tell. You had major Fortune 100 companies with a part-time privacy person with no budget. And then you had mid-sized companies with an army of privacy people. And this was has changed a little bit as the market has matured. But this was at least for the first two, three years of the market. And we always said, look, we never want budget to stop us from being able to work with a good company because we believe in the trend of the market and we know budgets and teams and things are going to be there and we're patient to watch it develop. And I also had support from my investors. That's key. Your investors have to be supportive of being patient to wait for the revenue to grow and doing things for free and experimenting and believing in the model that you can always find ways of building more enterprise capabilities that you can charge for in the future. Uh, it, it, if you can't get someone to use it for free, you know, kind of to my point on if somebody doesn't pay for it, you don't have a business. If you can't get somebody to use it without paying for it, you don't have a business either, right? Uh, and so it was a good proof point for us and a strategy that I think has been very well received by the market. And, you know, again, part of building a company isn't always, it is, you know, the, the product and the price and everything, right? It's also, um, you know, is your brand and the way you're serving the market, is it is it being served in the right way? Are you building a community? Are you building the knowledge? Are you giving back in the right ways uh, and not just taking? And we really believe that this is a two-way street. I mean, we, we get so much from our customers. Uh, and we also knew the more customers you get using free tools, you get more feedback, you can build a better product, you can get more paid customers from that. So there are so many reasons that took us down that path. Yeah, it certainly feels like, um, I mean, looking around at my peers in industry, uh, companies that are using OneTrust, uh, that people feel they are choosing to invest in OneTrust personally. Uh, you know, like saying, my strategy for working uh, with this kind of solution is Vendopedia, or it's going to be using this tool from OneTrust. It's going to be, that is the OneTrust way of doing it, and that is my kind of standard operating model. Um, and I guess you're supporting that with certifications so that I'm not going to use the word indoctrinate, but you're, you're helping people build an operational practice around kind of privacy with OneTrust tools. Yeah. And I, you know, I think what I've learned to appreciate in the market, um, and I, I learned this back at AirWatch is that in a new market where this is the first time privacy people are really buying tools and having budget for that, uh, th that is a responsibility above all, everything else, because, somebody's career is dependent on making the right choice. And one of the signs that you're doing well in the market is you see your customers getting promoted and you see them getting better jobs and more senior jobs because we invested together. And certainly it's people, process, and tools is the least important part of it, but it is one small part of it. And so if we can deliver for our customers and make them successful, that's a great career rewarding opportunity for them. 
if we fail, then that impacts someone's livelihood. And once you realize that, you know, that is a pressure that weighs on you heavily. And so that's why the whole ecosystem of around training and certifications, you know, being responsive to customer ideas, uh, all those things are a, is, is part of the solution you're delivering as a technology company. It's not just a, a product and a, and a login to a SaaS URL. There's an entire ecosystem that comes with that. I'll have to admit, actually, that before this call, I did reach out to some of my um, friends and say, you know, give me some questions uh, to ask. And uh, one of them was, um, how do they do all that customer service? Like, they don't get that from other vendors. It's just, as you say, a SaaS product, you get it, you get a support login, and that's it. Whereas it's like a whole ecosystem of like, of people constantly trying to help you use the product better. Like, how do you do that? How do you how do you have that culture? How do you have that many people helping people? You know, we we always talk about four things culturally that drives our company. The first is always about our people. It has to be. We have to have people that are in it that want to be there because that translates into them helping customers. So it's called one team is our goal. We got to get the right people in the boat. And by getting people that want to get privacy certified, somebody who's not willing to take an IAPP test isn't going to come in the door. So you already have a caliber of person that just loves this stuff, right? The second is we, we talk about hate to lose like we talked about, but the third is bear hug. Like we have to bear hug our customers and make everyone feel good that this was the right investment. Um, and then we can think big, which is how do we really build these innovative flagship, interesting programs with our customers and culturally is a big part of it. But then in the enterprise software world, it also comes down to kind of tooling and instrumentation and detecting when a customer might be off the course. So what we do is we actually built an instrumentation into the product and we said, okay, if a customer has been with us for six months and they don't have a baseline of number of PIAs, number of incidents logs, number of data flows process, then they're probably not up, they might be using it, but they haven't operationalized it in a way that is a reflex of the company and really being used. And so we can proactively reach out and think about those things. We also have consistently done new releases on our product every three weeks for four years. So you can imagine somebody that started with you two years ago and got trained on it, there's now all these new features and capabilities that are great, uh, but they don't necessarily know how to turn them on. So they might be stuck with some limitation from two years ago and being getting frustrated on it. So we also built instrumentation on that. So. For example, custom email URLs is a great example of that. So if you, uh, our tool sends email alerts. If you send those from the onetrust.com email, a lot of those go to spam because that's, you know, or it can be perceived as a phishing email because it's, you know, your email coming from a OneTrust domain. And that's like an area that uh, is not so clean. But we have a feature that lets you hook up your own email server and it's super easy to use. So we can detect who's not using that feature and then proactively reach out and suggest it to them. And so a lot of, remember, we have 8,000 customers and we add about 1,000 new customers every quarter. So this is a whole new level of scale that you have to have this instrumentation. And that's why customers kind of tell us, you know, they kind of dream of a feature and it shows up the next day or they were thinking about a problem and we're able to solve it for them. And so this is a lot about how we we deliver for our customers. And I can speak personally on, on this, that as someone that uses OneTrust every day, it's starting to really feel like the privacy person's Amazon Web Services with, in a sense, it's like an ever-growing number of tools and integrations. It's 
it's just getting so incredibly broad. Uh, but you don't see many tech companies operating that kind of way yet. Are there any tech companies out there that are kind of inspiring your product direction? Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of amazing tech companies out there. We look to Salesforce a lot at how they built their model. I mean, they have an entire training ecosystem, developer ecosystem, customer community. Uh, but when you look at it, they're a very similar story to us where they found kind of some opportunity um, to disrupt a market. And for them, it was the CRM. For, for us, that was privacy. But then they realized once, you, once a customer starts using a CRM and they put all their customer data in it, it's so easy and so much more efficient for them to also run their customer service on it because you can have the context of who are your customers, what did they buy in your support tool. Well, then at the same time, let's use our partner tool on it, our marketing. It's such a natural extension. Each of these products serves a different person's need in the organization. It comes together in a platform and they built this massive community around it. And we see this market of trust evolving in the same way. Think about the privacy platform. In privacy, you're entering every contract, uh, every uh, vendor, every IT application and system, every data flow. And then in your privacy by design, you know where every new marketing campaign, I mean, you know everything. And I always tell our customers, th there is so much valuable data that you enter into a privacy platform that you are the most valuable person in the company and you know more about what's happening than the CEO does. It's just a matter of how do you use that information to go beyond compliance and to help the business make strategic decisions about entering new markets, about negotiating with partners. And that data can be reused as part of a GRC program because in GRC, you need all your IT systems listed. You can reuse that for an ethics and compliance program. You can reuse that for so many different things. Um, and that's very similar to the Salesforce story. So let's talk about that transition from kind of privacy to uh, kind of a trust platform. And I imagine platform is probably the word that you're going to be using a lot more in the future in that kind of Salesforce kind of fashion. But um, OneTrust are not shy of acquisitions and releasing new modules and features. So let's talk about some of the new ones that have come out. Uh, the most recent one is ESG. So let's start with that one. What's that? Oh, so ESG is all around environmental social governance. And this is something that uh, when I do um, uh, privacy and chief privacy officer roundtables, ESG comes up in almost every single one of those today. And, you know, the concept of ESG is very broad. And if you look at the World Economic Forum, they have a stakeholder capitalist group and they just at Davos released a, a framework for ESG. And if you look at it, it's kind of this overarching framework of, of how to be trusted. And it includes privacy, includes security, environmental, diversity, sustainability. I mean, it goes on and on. And it starts to codify all these things that are so fragmented into a way to report to a board and report on financial metrics to investors. And so it's getting a lot of, I would say, framework level attention at a more specific and detailed level. The E part of that, the environmental part of that is critical from a financial institution perspective driving that change. You had BlackRock, the biggest asset management company in the world, their CEO in their annual statement uh, talked about uh, uh, climate risk is investment risk, and they're going to de-emphasize holding companies that don't have a net zero carbon program. On the S part, you have uh, all the things that uh, are the social unrest, uh, the Me Too movement, diversity issues, all these things that are so timely and important and, co and companies are grappling with 
how do we, what's the framework to manage and report? Just like Carl, privacy, you know, when you started in privacy, there was no real framework. It was like about how do we, how do we take something that's a, a feeling and a concept and something we know we need to do for good reasons and build a program around it? That's kind of where that industry is uh, today, but it's a critical part of, of being trusted. Excellent. Uh, next one, redacted.ai. Give me a quick overview of that one. <laughs> Uh, redacted comes from DSR, primary employee DSRs. I mean, we've heard of law firms charging six figures plus to print out emails, take a Sharpie to them. And so redaction is hard because it's a data discovery problem first. You got to find the words that are personal and then it's a redaction technology problem. So that's, uh, you know, employee DSRs picking up uh, is what's driving that. Great. And, uh, and one that I wanted to uh, mention as well um, is about questionnaire response automation. Now, anyone that works in the B2B space, like I do quite a bit, uh, knows that you're going to get a lot of questionnaires about security, about privacy, about how your product works and things. And filling those in is an absolute nightmare on a daily basis. Uh, there's been some great innovative uh, vendors come up like uh, Lupio and RFPIO and, and many others uh, where you're spending 15 grand a year on those. But am I right that yours is free? Yeah, we have a we have a free version and a paid version, and it depends, I think, how many questionnaires you want to auto respond to. Uh, but we set those thresholds pretty high so people can use them. Uh, and the key there is when we looked at the market, the Lupios and the RFPIOs were designed to help companies with RFPs, not for security questionnaires. And so their accuracy rate is extremely low in filling out security questionnaires. So we said, look, we got to be specific to this industry because these tools are built on NLP and machine learning. But the way security questionnaires are structured, the wording of those, it's hard to make those accurate unless you've designed a tool specifically for it. And so that's why we released that tool. And when you test us side by side on a security questionnaire, it's like a, way more accurate than anything else in the market. So that's been very exciting. Amazing. Uh, and we've just had a question come in uh, from James again, asking about uh, uh, any plans to ever go into industry-specific domains? Um, healthcare has some interesting challenges, for example. Uh, we're not going to ask you to give away anything confidential, but uh, just general direction, is that an area that is being looked into? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and James is, is spot on. Um, and we have openings on our team, James, to help us build out our healthcare uh, industry as well. So if you do have knowledge, we're, we're happy to use it. But, you know, look, there are all sorts of, of industries. I mean, finance, government, healthcare, retail, media, technology, publishers. And so uh, that is a big part of our strategy. Yes. Fantastic. Um, OK, is OneTrust getting too big? Is the portfolio getting too wide? Yeah. And so... Um, you know, the, the key question is always um, kind of how, how do you make sense of this entire portfolio? And for us, uh, look, our DNA and core is always privacy. And the way we look at our growth and, and the breadth of offerings we have now is we don't we can't find a way that you can really deliver a great solution for a privacy person unless you can deliver this in a platform. Because remember, the privacy person's tool needs to live within the broader ecosystem in the organization. And if you deliver a tool that just does a point solution of privacy, you're kind of forcing the privacy person to go against the grain of all the other platforms that company has invested in and kind of do their rogue thing and re-enter data into a new platform. And so we see it as an existential issue in the market. If we don't go broad, then we can't actually go deep into serving that privacy professional. 
Uh, so we think it's critical to that success. So I'd like to kind of dive into that a little bit then in terms of pricing, because uh, in the early days of OneTrust, I remember there were concepts of bundled modules and some bundle pricing and that from what I can see kind of disappeared uh, to just be kind of per module pricing. And that's kind of fine. Everyone's kind of used to that. But as the portfolio gets really wide uh, and you want to get more people using more stuff, are you considering moving back or having the option of bundled pricing like an Office 365 or a Salesforce might where I can just give you a, a check and you can just give me access to everything? Uh, yes. And yes, in a, in a big way. And Man, did you you know just read exactly the conversations we're having at at OneTrust? And um, you know it's complex. We haven't always gotten it right. We tried to roll out like a GDPR bundle, CCPA Lite bundle, but the challenge becomes every company wants to customize those bundles a little bit. And so you know how do we package those in the right ways, make it cost effective? Uh, this is something you should expect to see from us uh, in the very near future. And I guess just to be fair uh, to you on that one, when I have spoken to some of your uh, sales colleagues and I've tried to build a bundle, they've been able to do something creative for me. So, yeah, creative salespeople is one of the uh, the ways you could certainly describe one trust from uh, my my experience. Um, I just want to ask you a bit, a little bit about you personally. Uh, so. We talked about OneTrust being a bit of a rocket ship and the last five years has been kind of incredible for you, but that must be quite a killer when you're on that rocket ship every day. How do you personally disconnect? Can you disconnect or do you just say, you know, I'll disconnect when I die? What, what's the plan for you? How do you, how do you chill out? Um, you know, I, I would say this is probably, you know, when people ask me what mistakes I've made, this is probably the biggest mistake I had made, um, you know, starting OneTrust. And, you know, I was young, still in my 20s. Um, you know, I think it's 27 when I started and I was flying 400,000 miles a year doing day trips to flying 40 hours to Sydney just for a, a three hour meeting. Um, and, you know, man, do you get unhealthy doing that? Um, and for me, it was, you know, not acknowledging, you know, I was young and I thought this was, I think it's so exciting for me. I'm having so much fun, but that is a type of stress. And if you don't manage even the good stress, um, it can run away from you. And so, you know, I've really, I would say, gotten a lot better in this area and learning how to balance, how to have a great team where you let your team do their job and and let them support you and, and uh, you know, without having to uh, review everything or, or analyze everything. And we have a great team that can go fly and do events and conferences. And so I've really learned to balance. I still love jumping on a plane, so I have to catch myself sometimes. But look, diet, exercise, personal relationships, you know, I'll give you an example, Carl, and this is something is probably my biggest regret is I skipped my best friend's bachelor party. I skipped my best friend's wedding to go to a conference in Germany, the Bitcom conference. And man, like those are things that like haunt me. And, you know, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't let those things happen again. So it's a real challenge. And I think this is something a lot of CEOs don't talk about, especially first time founders and CEOs where there's so much pressure on you to deliver. Uh, and especially since you have to earn the credibility the first time around. Uh, and man, I could I could go on and on on the lessons I've learned, but I have learned so much balance. I've built such great relationships with my friends and family. I have my first child on my way. I exercise six days a week now. I meditate. So I've completely transformed how I, how I manage that. Excellent. Are you one of those CEOs that gets up at 2 a.m. every day for four hours in the gym and three hours of meditation? <laughs> Is that you? Are you a thought, are you a thought leader? 
<laughs> you know, I, I have a very disciplined schedule every day. You know, I, you always read these, you know, clickbait articles that's like Jeff Bezos wakes up at four and does. And it's like, look, I, I maybe that he did that a couple days. I don't know that you, you could do that every single day. Uh, but certainly in a global international business, you know, you find yourself getting text messages and calls. We got an office in Australia and Brazil and I mean, everywhere now. And so you do have to be really creative and flexible uh, with your working hours, for sure. It's uh, it's really interesting to see you're kind of full of vigor and life and optimism uh, because you've not had a child yet, and so <laughs> uh, and so as soon as that uh, your your lovely child arrives, uh, we'll probably have a chat again in about a year, and you'll be about thirty pounds heavier. You'll be on your second heart attack, and you'll be like, my God, I thought I thought like I thought I had stress handled, and um, yeah. I've got no doubt I'm in for some surprises. Yeah, I, you will be for sure. Um, <laughs> we've got a few questions that came in uh, outside uh, from the audience. I'll, I won't give you too many because there's a lot. But um, one one question came up about uh, how are you going to try and make it easier for both small and large organizations to get moving quickly uh, with the product, like deployment time? I know historically it's often been done with uh, consultants or uh, just free kind of free consultancy from one trust, but are you looking to put more systematic uh, wizards and processes into the product so that a novice can just turn it on and get going with it? Yeah, yeah I mean it's it's a great uh, thoughtful question, and you know these things are always a journey and the and the maturity in the market, and we a core part of our strategy is serving the mid market and SMB, and there are lots of challenges and how you have a single platform that serves all of those markets. So the first is always pricing. And so in the last few years we solved, I'm sure you've seen Carl, we have uh, what's called the OneTrust Pro product line that is all of our features and capabilities, but it's like a fraction of the cost. And we do that if you're less than 2000 employees, it's very low. If you're less than 500 employees, it's crazy low. And then we have free. So we solved the pricing of it first. Then what you, you know pointed to is the implementation is, a, is, is sometimes cost prohibitive. So we said, look, we'll implement it for free. Don't worry. But the second, the, now the third part of that is how do you make it so you don't need an implementation at all? Now, the challenge here is a lot of time in the mid-market and SMB, um, even if you make the product self-service, which we've done with some of our products, um, the you can have wizards and all these things built in, but a lot of times the maturity in the industry is just not there. Typically at the smaller companies, it's newer privacy people put in the role, haven't done it necessarily before. And so they'll kind of struggle even doing it on their own, even if it's easy to use. So we have to be really thoughtful because when customers sometimes ask for it to be self-service, but that's not really what they want. Now, longer term, you know, things like the cookie tool has to be automated and self-service, you know, things like a lot of these, these different technologies. And so we've invested in kind of user journey tools that um, uh, walk, com you know, companies through and we enable that by default for all new customers. And, you know, it's, an in it's a huge investment for us. But the other piece of it, Carl, is that at these smaller, middle-sized companies, they're not just doing privacy. A lot of times it's the privacy and security person together. And so you also have to think, outside the box in terms of maybe it's actually a whole different product that they need. And so those are also things that we think about. Instead of having a privacy platform and a GRC platform, two different modules, how do we just make it one? And so we're thinking a lot about this and, and constantly improving there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the areas that 
I think everyone would like to see more work done on is the kind of integration. So they kind of, there is a, a lot of separation between modules that they're, they're somewhat siloed, even though there's a lot of methodology that's the same with them. So, um, making use of that overlap, because as you said earlier on, once you've got the data in there, it's, it's a whole platform that you can use that. So it's great to hear that that's, that's being worked on. Um, exactly. one of the other questions we've got here, uh, so how are OneTrust going to make deployment? Um, so how are OneTrust addressing emerging technologies, uh, like AI, so bias in AI is a great example, um, an evolution in the ad tech space. Uh, I know, uh, GPC is something that's been looked at, but you've got like Google working with flocks and, um, the death of third party cookies. So, you know, what, how do you kind of stay on top of that and what's kind of coming that's like really on that emerging tech space? Yeah, so we, we break up teams into different centers of excellence that kind of monitor the market or part of these groups. So we're on the IAB advisory boards and we have a very close relationship with Google. We were, I think, one of the first, if not the first, to uh, adopt the GPC uh, uh, new technology. So we're, we, you know, we're the first ever to do uh, the IAB TCF, which I know is a controversial framework, but uh, you know, we have to support the industry continuing to iterate and move forward. Um, now, it's a lot to keep up with, but we have the size and scale to do that. Um, and we typically adopt and support these things early. Um, two very different types of problems, though. You know, on the AI side, a lot of what's happening in, and you'll know this very well, probably better than I do, Carl, is how do you really pivot a privacy program from being compliance and risk-based to being data ethics-based? And so how do you you know, use data ethics and values as a concept of trying to think about AI. And then there's a lot of research being done around technology around detecting algorithmic bias. And so all those things are, are active areas of research. Now, on the ad tech side, very different. Uh, you, number one, are have one part of the market trying to rapidly just find different ways of tracking. It's not a cookie, but it is a cookie. And, uh, and, and you know, so you, you have to support those. But at a bigger picture, the smart companies know that this whole third-party data collection is in the past, whether they know it or not. And the future is all about first-party data. How do you collect transparently your own data and use your own data? And so we're innovating a lot on first-party data collections, preference management, contextual user journeys. So, so an example is, instead of trying to scrape and secretly collect all this data through a cookie banner and acceptance, forget about the cookie banner for a second, right? We don't really care. What we want is to detect, to detect what page is the customer on, how long were they on it, what's the context of the page, and then pop up and ask the customer for one thing and one thing only, explain to them why it's valuable to them, and then do that exchange. And then give them a quarterly report where you send them an email to say, here's the data you've given us, here's how we've used it, and here's the value you've gotten in exchange. Do you want to give us more data because we can provide you even more data? That's the journey that really smart customers are on. And I think that's the future of that market. And speaking of smart customers and kind of smart products, one of the ones that's just come out extremely recently was the uh, consent optimization tool, effectively for those in the kind of tech world, an A-B, an A-B testing tool that allows you to uh, optimize the consent. Now, this could be seen as slightly controversial because some would argue you shouldn't be able to optimize consent. It should be either free or it's not. But, you know, there's different ways of presenting a banner. There's different colors you can use. There's different uh, things to give people different kinds of choice. And um, I, I work in some sectors and with some companies that are some of the 
biggest users of A-B testing. So this is a fantastic thing that I hope you guys are going to be promoting quite heavily because yeah. it's going to be quite innovative. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. Customers can, you know, you, you give someone a, you know, you give someone a tool and they can do good things with it or, or dangerous things. We try to limit, you know, people going too far. Um, and, and certainly our examples and templates, uh, we try to make sure are kind of well understood, respected. We work with the Keneal very closely on our default templates to make sure they're kind of well respected. We use what's on the ICO's website. But what, what I would say is it's less the consent rate optimization. A-B testing is a, a big part of it. But what's more interesting is kind of what we talked about earlier. And what we try to talk to customers about is stop obsessing over the cookie banner. Think about how like aggressive a cookie banner is a company a person's come to your website for the first time they don't know you and you're immediately before they even see if the website's valuable give me consent for all this stuff that i don't understand because this iab language on tcf is so confusing that nobody's ever going to figure it out and now you see these legitimate interest toggles that are just ridiculous but it's part of the standard and you know you it, it, it's it's crazy so what we tell customers is look earn the right and you're going to get more consent by taking what are the pieces you actually are the most valuable parts of that consent? Is it the personalization or is it something else? Is it the Facebook or, or something? So if it's a very simple personalization cookie, then just display that on a separate page when they're reading a blog and ask them if they want to personalize that experience and make it contextual and follow a user journey and make it transparent and earn the right to ask for it and you'll maximize the consent rates. And now that is more complex to implement because you need more technical resources, you need more thought, you need a privacy person that believes in this, doesn't just want to check a box. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of direction we can go with that that actually reduces the emphasis on the cookie banner, which is, I think, what we all want. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody likes a cookie banner, not even me. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's, let's, let's start to wrap up. And one of the things I wanted to uh, ask you about was how do we buy privacy tools? You know, when we're looking at the market, what would you recommend people should go for? Is it is automation where people should be looking, um, you know, and where are you kind of focusing in terms of what you think people should be looking for from OneTrust or any other vendor right now? Yeah. You know, look, I think the most important thing to say is that tools are not a silver bullet and tools don't make you compliant. And uh, maybe it's, it's uh, people are surprised for me to say that. Um, but look, it's not good for us and it's not good for a customer if they don't have the right people, they don't have the right process, and they just buy a tool and think it magically makes you compliant. A tool is to help somebody facilitate the people and processes they've invested in and make things efficient. And so a company shouldn't jump to a tool, hire the right people, build the right processes, and do things manually. Until you've done things manually, you don't understand what it's going to take to automate it. And that's a really important step that a lot of companies skip. Now, when it comes to a tooling perspective, you know, look, there are a lot of great options in the market and OneTrust is just one of those. Our customers, you know, Carl, you and I talked about this earlier, our customers um, really like to evaluate uh, more of the relationship with the company they're working with, not just the product. So sure, you want the best product, but you also want to know, is there a community around the product where you can get best practices, advice, help? Um, is there security and privacy behind the product where they're investing in world-class technology? What's the backing and funding? And are they going to be around for the long term? What are the goals of their company? Do they want to sell? Are they going to disappear in a year? 
evaluating a third party is a much broader relationship, especially in this market. And our customers want a platform they can grow into, not out of. They want a partner that's investing in the market and is part of the market, is at the events, is at the workshops, not as a vendor, but as a participant and learning side by side and shoulder to shoulder with them and a company that's agile enough to build their feedback into their product. So th there's a lot to evaluate in the grand scheme of things. And it's and it's hard and it's complex. Um, and, um, and, and that's the nature of, of the software market. Yeah, you need a partner rather than a vendor. And I think that's what you guys are trying to do for sure. And and final question for you. Um, you know, one trust is a rocket ship right now. Um, how do people get onto that? Uh, where can people come and work for, come and work with you and for you? Yeah, we we are hiring a lot. And so we have a job site. Uh, thanks for letting me do a shout out for that, Carl. But on our website, you can go to our career site and we have a number of openings. Uh, available internationally all over the world. And we're starting to get more remote. We're starting to get used to the idea of remote people, uh, even not in one of our headquarters as well. So yeah, I'd encourage anyone to apply online. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'll let you get back to your uh, back to your rocket ship, but I really appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, thank you for joining us. Carl, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Show notes for this episode are available on my website, carlgottlieb.com. And if you'd like to discuss your own privacy requirements, then please get in touch. I'll be happy to help. I've been your host, Carl Gottlieb. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.